I've been blessed with a responsibility um, that weighs heavily on me and that I'm very thankful for um, to teach. Uh, today we're going to look at the book of Acts, um, chapter 8, and we're going to follow up on the last message that I gave uh, a few weeks ago uh, in which we went through verse 8 of that chapter and we saw the uh, beginning of the persecution of the church in Jerusalem and uh, many believers were scattered and they went about preaching the word wherever they went and one of those people was Philip, who was, if you go back to chapter 6 of Acts, one of the first uh, faithful deacons of the church. And he winds up in Samaria, which is a tough spot for a Jew uh, to be in in that day and age. There's a lot of uh, historical trouble between Judea and Samaria, and Jews basically had no dealings with Samaritans, John chapter 4 tells us. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that previous message if, if you need a little bit more background information on that. But in spite of this political climate, uh, Philip preaches the gospel, and a lot of people come to believe, and we left off after verse 8, which says there was great joy in that city, which brings us to our text this morning. I'm going to read this whole text. Um, it'll take just a minute, and then we'll come back, and we'll, we'll take a more nuanced look through it a little bit at a time. So this is Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 9 through 24. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, and Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, "'Give me also this ability.'" so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Father, thank you for bringing your word to us. It alone is, is powerful and is beyond our grasp to fully understand it. And so we depend on your spirit this morning, Father, the spirit that is such an important part of this section to help and to guide us to an understanding that would make us useful for you and for the growth of your kingdom. Thank you for that opportunity. Amen. So after we learn that the gospel brings joy to Samaria, we get an inside look at a specific person among the crowds, and his name is Simon. And he's not really among the crowd so much as he's always at the front of the crowd. <clears throat> the first three verses tell us a lot about him, and there's a lot to dive into, but let's look at just the basic facts. We have a man named Simon, who's a sorcerer. Some translations call him a magician. And he's very good at it, and he knows it. And people have put him up on a pedestal, and they're following him. So he has entertainment power, to grab their attention and wow them, and he has personality power to 
pump himself up and be famous in front of them. And he has political power. He has followers. So we can't understate how influential and important Simon was in this little part of the world. The text says he was a sorcerer, and it's not really clear exactly what he's been doing. The Greek is maguo, that's where we get the word magic, and it's only here where it shows up in the Bible, so we don't have a lot of context for it. Um, we don't know if this was like street corner sleight of hand stuff or this was big Vegas show style things. Um, but based on how people react, I'm, I'm willing to bet it's a pretty flashy thing, pretty intense and unusual. They were calling him the great power of God. You don't get that kind of a label unless you're doing something pretty intense. And it's an almost messianic level title. Uh, people are touting him as the power of God putting on a show. There's some verses in Matthew and, and other places that, that talk about this kind of thing. Uh, Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, uh, verse 23. It says, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And 2 Thessalonians 2 talks a little bit more at length about this kind of thing, about the deceptiveness of Satan and his, his ability to sway those who are perishing. Scripture tells us the devil will use signs and wonders to sway people and give them awe and win them away from God. So it was with Simon the sorcerer. He'd gained a following of people who believed him to be the power of God. It's a dangerous thing. Verse 11 says, They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. These people were amazed, but they were also, in a sense, under the spell of Simon, entranced. They wanted more of the show because it was entertaining. It wowed them. And he'd been doing this for a long time. People got into the habit of gazing on Simon and letting him be their stand-in for God. It speaks to me about how easily we get used to things, how easy it is for things to become habit, things like skipping Bible study or, or ignoring a prayer need or not returning that phone call from a friend who really needs a conversation to forget to spend time in the Bible reading. Those things become habit very easily. It's very easy to, to follow whoever or whatever else is willing to entertain us that's shiniest and to let it stand in for God. Simon did that and he had them wrapped around his finger. So he's the most famous, most looked at, most proud guy around and people are all but and probably even bowing down to him. And then Philip comes to town. And if they've been amazed by the incredible action movie that Simon's been putting on for them, Philip basically hands them the 3D glasses and takes things to a, a totally different level. Verses 12 and 13 say, But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, and Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Simon followed Philip everywhere, which seems like a good start for a devout life to follow around a good teacher, but we have to make a distinction between a follower of the ways and a follower of the way. The ways being the things, the actions themselves, the, the hollow physicality, the shadows of things that are to come, as it's put in Colossians 2. And the way, capital W, being the repentant heart and the newborn soul of a believer who follows Christ. That's what they called Christians before they had the word Christian. They called them followers of the way because it was such a dramatic change in how they lived their lives. One is an imitation of actions and the other is a conversion of spirit. 
my son is seven years old, and for literally most of his life, all he's really wanted to do is to build robots. He wants to build robots to drive to the grocery store. He wants to build robots to fold his clothes. He wants to build robots to make pizza. He wants to build robots to weed the garden. He wants to build a, a robot that's a whole house that can go anywhere and do anything. He's already decided he wants to study robotics at MIT. So if anybody wants to make a donation to his college fund, you can see me after service. And we were able this year, by the grace of God, to give him a, a Lego robotics set for Christmas, and he's just been going nuts with it. Um, and it's surprisingly complex, and, and you can program it to do all these things with the tablet, and it can, um, it can move in certain ways and perform certain actions, and it can speak, and it can, it can sense colors and measure distances, and it can interact with the world around it. But all it's doing, amazing as it is, is imitating the instruction set that it's given. It has no life. And that's the kind of faith that Simon had. He followed Philip around, probably acting like him, mimicking him, trying to duplicate what he saw as this incredible magic to learn how Philip pulled off what he saw as his great trick. But Simon didn't have the same heart. But there are many true believers in Samaria besides Simon, and that gets the attention of the apostles back in Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Remember that though Jesus had given the apostles the commission to make disciples of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, there's still a very Jew-centric view among many early believers. Perhaps they might have thought Jesus just meant to spread the gospel to the Jews living in those areas because there are some Jews in Samaria and there are some Jews living abroad. Here in this text this morning is where it really hits home that Jesus meant the gospel beyond the Jews for all people. So Peter and John are sent up to Samaria. Why them? It would seem to make for a, an ineffective way of spreading the good news if every believer had to be individually touched by the hand of an apostle, especially once all the apostles died. But what I see in the text is that this is the first real confirmation of there being a believing body outside of Jerusalem. To this point, the formal church has existed just in that city. And because of the persecution um, of Saul at the start of this chapter, Christians have now been spread around, including to Samaria, which has that antagonistic relationship with Judea. So in a way, you can look at this group of believers here in Samaria as kind of the first church plant, the first one that's outside of the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem. So it makes all kinds of sense Logically, for the apostles to send a couple guys up there for two reasons that I can think of. One is to make sure that they've got their doctrine right, that they're on sound theological ground. Another is that antagonism between Samaria and Judea. If word gets back to the, uh, the body in Jerusalem <coughs> that Samaritans have received the word, um, there are going to be folks there who don't like it, who won't accept them as part of the body of Christ. But by sending Peter and John, the apostles forge a relationship with that body in Samaria. In a way, they're giving the Samaritan church uh, the apostolic seal of approval, in a way, which is going to make it easier for the whole body of Christ to be of one accord and unified. And as the divine plan of God grows his church beyond Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria and into the ends of the earth, it's going to be very helpful to have some alignment among those bodies so that the truth is passed on properly and not compromised. And many of the epistles in the New Testament are for the purpose of correcting doctrine and or behavior and for increasing unity. 
but ultimately that unity has to come from Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 reminds us that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church, and the apostles and prophets are the foundation, that the cornerstone is the absolute truth, the perfect stone, and the foundation stones are the ones around which all else is lined up. And we see this in chapters 10 and 11 of Acts. Peter has a vision, and he goes with some men to the house of Cornelius, a Roman in Caesarea, and he gives them the gospel. And in verse 44 of chapter 10 of Acts, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And in chapter 11, the apostles hear about this, how these Gentiles had received the word, and they complain uh, in chapter 11, verse 3, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Peter explains himself what happened and why he did it, and then he says in verse 17, 18, so if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And here's, here's the crux of it, verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There is an apostolic authority to the apostles recognizing someone as being saved and having received Christ. That connection is going to be really important for including the Samaritan church with the body at Jerusalem. The existence of believers in Samaria is a kind of do-or-die moment for the church body for unity. Very shortly after its beginning, since then, and today, the church has been plagued by people finding differences with each other, with doctrine, with God, and splitting off. And this has the effect not just of false teaching creeping in, but of creating a fractured and disunited body. So maybe Peter and John went to help avoid that kind of thing from happening. We don't know what the conversation looked like, but we see what came out of it. They send Peter and John, and this is their A-team, These aren't scrubs. This is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and Peter, to whom Jesus said in Matthew 16 that he would give the keys of heaven. The same Peter who, by the way, is present when the Holy Spirit is given to the Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost, who's present when the Holy Spirit is given to the Samaritans here in this this section today, and when the Holy Spirit is given to the Gentiles, as we just recounted in Acts chapter 10. So Peter and John are sent to Samaria, and what they do, as we see in verse 15, is they pray. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that, there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They prayed that these people who have received the word of God might also receive the Spirit. Now, a few moments ago, I referred to those people in Samaria as true believers, and I think the text supports this. Some have argued that their salvation is incomplete without this subsequent filling of the Spirit. But the text doesn't say that. It says that Peter and John prayed for these people to receive the Holy Spirit because it had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in Jesus' name. Well, simply being baptized in Jesus' name is plenty. Scripture tells us repeatedly it's through the grace of God that we have faith that saves. It is a heart that is repentant of sin and devoted to Jesus Christ and not the physical act of baptism or the demonstrative outpouring of the Holy Spirit that saves us. And we read just a moment ago in Acts eleven eighteen that it is repentance that leads to life. Peter himself said in Acts two thirty eight to a crowd of befuddled Jews at the temple in Jerusalem, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's exactly what our text today says happened. 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this suggests that people have already received in themselves the Holy Spirit when they come to believe. Look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When you believed, you received the Holy Spirit. There is a difference between the inhabitants of the Holy Spirit at conversion and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for service. So it definitely appears to me from the text that these people are saved. They are believers. The text doesn't say they haven't exactly received the Holy Spirit inside of them. What it says is that the Holy Spirit had not come upon or seized or taken possession of. That's what the word means in the Greek. In John 20, verse 22, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. But it's not until Pentecost, weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection, that they have the incredible overflowing of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So we're just looking at different events, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at conversion and the expression of the Holy Spirit when needed for service. In Samaria, there had not been an expression of the Holy Spirit, causing them to do the kinds of things that happened at Pentecost, speaking in tongues or maybe prophecy or other such Spirit-infused actions. The text doesn't say they were incomplete believers because of that because they hadn't had this overflow, it says that Peter and John prayed for them to have it because it was an incredible experience that had the purpose at Pentecost of making the gospel known in all kinds of languages to people from all over the world, from all kinds of countries at that particular time. And at Pentecost, it had been an outward and visible and vocal confirmation to others of the Spirit's presence in those believers. An outward confirmation that was not necessary to make them fully saved, but was necessary to make them fully useful for the spreading of the gospel at that moment. That was its purpose at Pentecost. And maybe Peter and John think that there is a similar purpose to be served here in Samaria because they're dealing with people who had seen amazing sights and sounds before, performed by Simon, and had accredited them to the very power of God when they were, in fact, the workings of Simon and, and possibly demonic influences. So in addition to encouraging church unity, they also have a need to set the record straight a little bit here, which they do in verse 17. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, "'Give me also this ability.'" so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of me's and I's and my's in that statement from Simon. Part of the problem here is that he doesn't understand the mechanics of how the Spirit works. Simon sees the apostles laying hands on people and the Holy Spirit coming upon them, and he assumes it's the apostles making it happen. We just had a demonstration of that this morning, 15 minutes ago. It was not the elders that laid the Holy Spirit on my heart to come and start to serve the Lord. That was his job. Simon wants to buy the ability to give people the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> There's even a word for Simon in the dictionary, simony. He has his own word. And it means the buying or selling of a church office or ecclesiastical preferment. His name means to bribe your way into power in the church. Well, he was certainly remembered. He wants to buy holy power. Did you know that, that many magicians today don't come up with their own tricks? 
that there's, there's a whole sub-industry of people who come up with illusions and create them and sell them to magicians to use in their acts. The magicians are the performers, are the front people, the ones with stage presence. That's what Simon is. Scripture warns us about false prophets and teachers. We looked at that in Matthew briefly. And I think Simon is the performing sorcerer buying the devil's tricks to become famous. And it's worked pretty well for him so far. Now he wants to buy this trick, this new and more fancy trick than he's ever been able to come up with. I can't say exactly what his motivation was, but it's one of two things. Either he's greedy for the power and authority and recognition that he had before when he spent years amazing people and they were bowing down to him. That's one option, a lust for fame. The other is that Simon hasn't been paying attention to what Philip's been teaching. That Simon's been going to church and following Philip around and being baptized and yet has totally missed the point. That's the other option. So it's either a greed for fame or it's complete obliviousness. I'm not sure which one of those is a better option. The reality is probably the former, that it's a greed for fame, and that leads to him not understanding what Philip has been teaching. And Peter calls him out on this in verses 20 to 23. <clears throat> Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter ridicules Simon for wanting to buy the gift of God. This is ridiculous, of course, because it can't be done. That was one of the primary messages of the early evangelists and authors is to reiterate that salvation isn't something earned but freely granted by grace. There's no amount of money or, or fame or, or power or good works or substitute whatever vice you have in here is enough to acquire the gift of God. You can't earn God's grace. That's a primary point of the gospel message. That's how it can go out beyond God's chosen people, the Jews, and into Samaria and to the Gentiles like most of us. So that leaves the question of how do you qualify? How do you become worthy to partake of God's gift and love? Some of you know we're probably going to flip to Isaiah, chapter 55. You know, I, you can see things throughout the whole Old Testament that, that point to Christ, but every time I come to Isaiah when I'm studying, it's like, it's just this, it's like a cocoon, you know, from which Christ is just waiting to, to emerge from. So Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2, it says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to me, or sorry, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. The gift of God's grace is available to those who ask for it and Simon doesn't get that. The gift he's after is the show, the ability to make people notice him. Peter sees this false motivation. In verse 21, he tells Simon, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. These are familiar words to Peter, by the way. If you go back to John 13, you'll read the scene where Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. And verses 6 to 8 say, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, 
You did not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That same phrase, no part with me, or my ministry, tells us a lot. It tells us about a prerequisite for ministry. You know, technically what Simon is asking for, if you can disregard his motivation for a second, is the power to give people the Holy Spirit. Technically speaking, he's asking to be able to do ministry and spread the gift of God as he understands it poorly. Now, his motivations are all messed up, but bear with me. He's asking to be able to do ministry, and Peter tells him, no way. You're not qualified. You can't partake in ministry if your heart's not right with God. That's why sometimes people are asked to step down from positions when it becomes clear from their actions that their lives don't reflect a heart that's committed to Christ, not as punishment, but so that ministry isn't hampered, that the gospel message isn't compromised or twisted, and so that the person can get right with God. Look what Peter says here in verse 22. He says, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. He doesn't tell Simon to get lost that he deserves 40 lashes. He tells him to repent and to pray. That's the admonition for somebody who doesn't get it. Repent and pray so you can. Go to God. Peter's not after Simon's skin here. He's after his soul. He sees what's in Simon's heart, this bitterness, and what has a hold on him, his sinfulness, and he tells Simon to repent and pray because that's the only way to get to the point of salvation, let alone ministry. My life has been taken over by this in the last couple of years, this pattern of repent and pray. Repent and pray. Begin to recognize the poor behavior that comes out of a heart that isn't fully right with God and ask for help from the Spirit to walk alongside and be better. Repent and pray. Rinse, repeat. And just because I've got a new title on my business card, it doesn't mean that process is complete, but it does, it brings it into focus how much more important it is to maintain that pattern. Repent and pray. Grow and change. That's what Peter's telling Simon to do here. Repent and pray. Change. Do so with the help of God. Ask him for help. He needs help because he's spiritually compromised. Peter continues in verse 23, For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. So just like it's evident to Simon when people have the Holy Spirit after the apostles lay hands on them, it's also evident to those with the Holy Spirit when men like Simon don't. And Peter's been around to see a lot of people captive to sin, including himself. He recognizes the signs of a heart that isn't given over to Christ. It's evident, church, when our hearts are captive to sin. It's visible, and it's going to come out. And it's going to be ugly, especially if we're trying to pretend that that's not the case. It's so much more work, and it's so much more difficult to cover up our sins than to just come before God and repent. And it is so much more sad when the cover-up is later revealed that you wonder how we thought we could get away with it without anyone knowing. When I was about... I must have been six years old. I remember being so angry at my older brother that I punched his door. And not like I was some kind of superhuman child, but it was, the doors were hollow core, and I, I punched through the outer layer of it. And what I could have done is I, I could have gone to my parents and said, I have done this thing, I am so sorry. 
But did I do that? I wouldn't be telling the story if I had. No, I went and I found a piece of paper, a piece of just lined notebook paper. And then I went and I found a box of crayons. And I pulled out the brown one. And then I went and I, I colored that paper, the whole thing brown. And then I went and found some scissors. And I cut out in the shape of that hole. And then I went and found some tape. And I carefully taped this piece of brown colored paper over the hole, and I walked away satisfied. <laughs> it's a lot of effort to cover up a sin that it's going to be so obvious. <laughs> My parents are here this morning. You'll have to ask them whether it was convincing. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, it's often so embarrassingly clear when we're trying to cover up the bitterness and that captivity to sin that's in our hearts. And it's especially clear when we're dealing with things of the Spirit and with people whose hearts are in better shape than ours, Simon is not walking in the Spirit here. And it's an incredible compassion from Peter not to just rebuke him and send him away and to instead tell him exactly what he needs to do, that he needs to repent and pray to fix it. He says, you have stuff in your life that needs to change, Simon. Go change it with God's help. He implores Simon to do what a believer ought to do, to go to God and get help. And in verse 24, Simon responds to that instruction from Peter. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. There's a kind of logic here in Simon's request. In verse 9, the people of Samaria were amazed at Simon. And in verse 13, Simon is amazed at the miracles happening as Philip preaches and in verse 18, Simon is amazed at the way the Holy Spirit is given, and he wants it. Simon's not a fool. He recognizes when others are better at something than he is. He thinks that Philip and Peter and John are much better at amazing people than he is. He thinks that if he follows Philip around and, and figures out how he does it, then he can have that power too. And he knows that Peter is an apostle, has actually spent time alongside Christ, and that he's a leader in the church. So surely, Peter is best qualified to talk to God about what's going on in Simon's heart, right? But this is further evidence that Simon just doesn't get it, that he doesn't get who Jesus is and how Christ changes how we relate to God, that he stands as our intercessor, that he pleads our case, that he put himself in our place on the cross, that he took on the literal filth of men when he washed Simon Peter's feet with a towel he was wearing, but that he also took on the filth of our sin when he laid himself bare before the Lord on the cross. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them, Hebrews 7.25. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, Romans 8.26. And then verse 34, it is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Because what it comes down to this uh, church is this. Jesus answered, verse 6 of John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
We need to come before the Lord with a heart that loves him. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It's with your heart that you believe. And as Peter pointed out, Simon has a heart issue. And he wanted someone else to fix it for him. But that's not how it works. We can't pass off our heart issues onto someone else, church. The Old Testament, too, is clear on this. Back to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. It says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Speaking of Christ, how he steps in for us, he intercedes for us, he pleads our case, as it were. Not Peter, not Paul, not another apostle, not a pope, not Pastor Matt or Pastor Arthur or myself or the elders. We are absolutely here to pray for you, to pray with you, but we don't step in and vouch for you directly into God's ear the way that Christ does. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It's probably familiar to many of you. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Here's the point of it, guys. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's not wrong to ask someone to pray for you. It's not wrong to have prayer cards and a prayer chain email and prayer groups and pray before service. That's not wrong. Of course not. That's lovely. But look at the content of what Simon's asking, and more importantly, the heart that's behind it. He's asking Peter to intercede for him, to go before God to plead Simon's case instead of approaching God's throne of grace with confidence because he knows Christ is there for him because he doesn't have that confidence. He doesn't get it, and it breaks my heart the way that Simon, whom the text earlier called a believer, just doesn't get it and seems to fall away. Simon and the rest of the Samaritans in this passage are raw. They're new believers. They are saved but not yet overflowing with the Spirit, not yet understanding how to live out their faith. They're still learning. And that is such a precious time in a believer's life when someone first comes to accept Jesus and they have just no idea how to go about it, what to do next. How does my life have to change? What is my heart supposed to look like? What actions do I need to give up and which ones do I need to begin? How do I live now? It's an incredible thing to shepherd somebody through. And Peter and John were sent to Samaria to help with that process. That support from believers and from church leadership is huge for somebody new to the gospel. But Simon, though he believed, didn't make the connection that he had to give up his own life, his own desires, that lust for fame, to follow Christ with a new heart. He may have had the spirit at conversion, but he wasn't listening. If you're in the process now of learning what it means to be a believer, I would love to pray with you after service today. Sorry, the weight just hit me. (laughs) 
I encourage you to come and see me. Or talk to Pastor Matt or Arthur or an elder. And if you're not in that process yet, if you haven't yet believed what Philip was teaching, what Peter and John taught, what Matt and I and Arthur teach, what Jesus said, that there is everlasting life in him, through him, and only him. And I pray the Spirit would move on you. And that you would feel his irresistible hand <laughs> on your spirit to repent and to pray to God, to say that Jesus Christ is the Savior, to repent and to pray in the way that Simon would not. I'm going to close by emphasizing how important it is, church, that we get it. Because when we get it, when we understand who Jesus is, we begin to live with a heart that is right toward God. And then we become equipped to do ministry. It's not so we can be made famous by, by handing out the Holy Spirit like it's candy. It, it's so that we can help other people get it. So that when there are Simons in our lives who believe but don't understand, and it's clear there's something in the heart that's in the way, that we would have the courage to tell them when they're mistaken about Christ and the faith to encourage them to repent and to pray and to be made whole by the grace of God the Father, saved by the Son, and filled up with the Spirit. Father, help us to let go of our bitterness. And Lord, thank you for breaking the bonds of sin so that we would not be captive to it. Thank you that there is life and forgiveness made possible by your grace alone. If there's anybody here who hasn't known you, I pray that you speak to them this morning. May the Holy Spirit whisper and groan and yell and encourage and prod and love us to come before your throne. In the name of your Holy Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Pastor Matt warned me about this. <laughs> well, that's just the gospel church. That's it. It's all about Jesus and his power, you know? He goes and he desires to make you his disciple. And then for you to go make disciples because he's that awesome and great. <laughs> what a great plan. Um, I want to close the service by inviting you to, to stay and stick around and, and, and give Marcus and Anna and his parents a, a hard time, not too hard. Uh, <laughs> encourage them, love them. There's some, there's some coffee and treats in, in, the, uh, in the hallway. Marx's mother uh, bakes some great stuff that's out there. So uh, just stick around and enjoy. And remember next week, plan to stay after. We're going to provide lunch for you and then elders question and answer afterwards. God bless you. You're dismissed.